0: On a windless night, there will be a breath that looks in your hair for a thread of death. Don't open your eyes. There's nothing to see. But if you do and there is, then you're dead to me. Carly and I were the only ones who hadn't tried it yet. Graduation night seemed as good as any to do it. We made the trek down to Hawksbill Crag at dusk. By the time we made it down there, the mountains blotted out the rays of the setting sun. Carly and I stood holding hands, palms sweaty but afraid to let go. We said the words we knew would conjure him. The Endless Man. The man that would grant you a long, healthy life or end you right there on the edge of the bluff. The mountains were beautiful around us until the darkness stole our sight. The wind died down to nothing. And even the mockingbirds and whippoorwills quieted. I didn't close my eyes until I felt his presence. That sickly, sweet breath, like fresh honey, wafting warmer than the summer night into my face. Carly squeezed my hand more tightly and gasped when she realized he was there. But I wasn't afraid. I knew what to do. Oh my god, Carly, look! I knew what fate awaited her if she listened to me, but she never really believed. The breath swept around us like a howling wind, so loud that I almost couldn't hear her scream. It was when the wind died down and her hand loosened its grip that told me I was blessed to have a long, healthy life. I finally opened my eyes. Her hand was the only thing left.
1: dark hours when you dare not close your eyes tales of horror to frighten and disturb what's that sound you hear from beneath your bed (laughs) join us As the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Beautiful friendship, doing anything for your bestie, or at least making them do anything for you. Well, that's what we learned from author A.C. McAnally from the tale which was this episode's cold open, The Endless Man, performed by Sarah Thomas. Halloween is so gosh darn close. Are you sleeplessly excited? Well, what if I told you there are some delightfully dark new experiences waiting for you? Let's start with a new book to read. Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing presents a new novel written by T.J. Lee. It's called Beneath the Static. In a port town known as Mantis Bay, a group of friends gather in a basement in a bid to film the next internet viral hit. Reaction content is on fire right now. They just need to find something to react to. That's how they discover Beneath the Static and its disturbing presenter jj watson what follows is a series of broadcasts that begin to unravel their collective truths the sages must overcome emotional and physical trauma past sins and nightmares to confront jj watson but can they survive their secrets being dragged into the light can they survive what lurks beneath the static check the link in the show notes to get your copy of this dark and engaging new book and if you're home on Halloween night, why not spend it with some of the No Sleep team on our Twitch channel? We'll be streaming some interactive games and hanging out, all while copious amounts of fun-sized candy is forced into our gullets. A link is in the show notes to our Twitch channel. Come float with us, or sink with us, if you dare. And finally, what if you want to listen to something other than our fiendish tales? Well, you've heard me before mention the excellent fiction podcast Leviathan Chronicles and some of its familiar voices. On November 1st, the new spin off series called The Rapscallion Agency premieres. Here's a teaser trailer for you
2: The bridge
3: between men and machine. What kind of change? One that changes everything the organic and the digital.
2: His head, it's metal.
4: Your friend Alvin the chipmunk is a non-stop recording hard drive.
0: The ability to record every human sense. Sight, sound, even thought. Everything anyone could ever see or hear gets recorded. Any
5: human being could be a spy.
0: This chip will allow us to know everything, as were the people we sell it to. They'll see all the data. Don't you get it? There is no one
6: that can stop us. Hey, Rockstar.
4: The Rapscallion Agency, a new audio drama from the creators of the Leviathan Chronicles, follows two of its youngest characters, Lizette and Clerican, who move to Paris.
7: Oh, Clerican is in Paris. Welcome to Paris.
4: And find themselves entangled in a sinister plot to control the world's most sensitive information.
8: I can take them out. I thought there were three of
0: them. Now there's two.
1: We've got to get out of here. No one is going anywhere.
4: Leviathan Audio presents The Scallion Agency, available November 1st. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So there you have it. New things to read, watch, and hear. All I can say is, you're welcome. And now, check under the bed and pull the sheets up tight. The darkness is here, but you'll be sleepless tonight. In our first tale, we meet some kids getting ready to go trick-or-treating. But are they kids, or are they teenagers? That transitional age when you're not sure if you're too old to trek for candy. But in this tale, shared with us by author Seth Borgen, the gang decides that maybe this Halloween calls for something more grown-up. Like a visit to that one old abandoned house. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Danielle McRae, and Matthew Bradford. So whether you're in search of candy-filled fun or something darker, be careful where you decide to do your devilry.
6: This Halloween caught Jules, Jack, and me At a weird point in our lives Last Halloween All we wanted was all we ever wanted To wear costumes Knock on doors And fill our bags with free candy Next Halloween It's safe to say Costumes and candy Will have given way to mischief And low-key devilry Eggs, shaving cream, trespassing Maybe trying our hands At a local urban legend or two This Halloween, however, who were we? This was decided at some point in that wordless way things are often decided between three best friends. While we still had a little bit of who we've always been left inside us, we owed it to ourselves to have one last real Halloween. To really do it, feel it, and tuck those feelings someplace permanent right before an old friend became a stranger in a crowd. Thinking this is what we decided, I put on my black and white skeleton bodysuit and skull mask and headed out. The sun had just disappeared behind the trees, marking the unofficial start to our neighborhood's tricking or treating. The October air was cool and electric, and jack o' lanterns glowed in the fresh darkness like branding irons. Kids in costumes were already making the rounds, some in small groups some with chaperones. As I made my way down the street, the recorded sounds of creaking doors and rattling chains and anguished moans from beyond the veil drifted into and out of earshot. Cutting through the occasional yard, I wound my way around plywood tombstones and plastic skeletal hands grasping for moonlight and ankles. It was glorious. At least I thought so, But when I finally found Jules and Jack, they seemed to be thinking something else. They were sitting on the curb under the yield sign where our three streets came together, their bags plopped down beside them. With their elbows on their knees and their chins on their hands, they looked deflated. Jules was a ghost, literally a sheet with two eye holes. But with the sheet pulled up and piled on her head, It looked more like a nun's habit. Jack was dressed as a cartoon devil, with a red cape, cow, horns, and a black, pencil-thin mustache painted over his lip. His plastic trident lay flat in the grass behind him, like a thing discarded. I stood over them. Their eyes barely acknowledged my arrival. Don't worry. I lifted my skull mask and popped it on my head like a hat. It's just me. Of
9: course it's you. You're too tall to be anyone else. We're the same height, Jules. All three of us are too tall? There's
6: taller. I said that. But it's true that we were on the older side of anyone I could see right then.
5: Yeah, yes, they're They're called parents.
6: Their voices were flat bored almost not at all the Jack who wore a second costume under his costume last year so he could loop the neighborhood twice or the Jules who earlier this very day said she was going to head out a half hour early so she could scope out which houses were handing out whole candy bars and which houses were handing out fruit that was less than three hours ago forget all that You're still you. I'm still me.
5: You're still you, that's for sure.
6: Across the street from us was Mr. Honeycutt's house. For trick-or-treat every year, Mr. Honeycutt's front porch consisted of three objects. A coffin, a bowl of candy, and a sign that read, Take one if you dare. If you do, in fact, dare, the coffin flies open and Mr. Honeycutt Wearing a movie-quality wolfman costume, snarls and growls and lunges at you with two hairy paws. The age of three, Jules, Jack, and I first became friends right there in Mr. Honeycutt's yard, huddled together, cold with terror, trying to muster the courage to approach the bull, knowing what would happen if we did. Our parents snickering at us from the sidewalk, Ultimately, we didn't find the courage that year, but we'd found each other. The following year, Jules braved alone the wolfman, while Jack and I watched from the safety of the street. The year after that, Jack found his courage as well. And the year after, we braved the porch together, until Mr. Honeycutt sent us flying into the night, laughing and shrieking at the same time. Exactly six years later, Mr. Honeycutt's coffin popped open with a heavy thud, followed by the familiar growls, snarls, and lunges, sending a couple of first-graders running for their lives with vivid smiles on their faces. In triumph, Mr. Honeycutt unleashed an enthusiastic howl. I was smiling, too. But when I turned back to Jules and Jack, they were watching the scene unfold with a blankness that made me feel more alone than I'd ever felt in my life. More alone than watching them take on Mr. Honeycutt's porch without me seven years ago. Lambs to the slaughter or cowering in fear. Everything is better with friends. Come on, guys. I nudged Jules' foot with my foot, then Jack's. Come on, get in the spirit. Uh, not yet. Jules scrounged around in her bag, popped something into her mouth, and held it in her cheek.
9: It's too early. Too early for what? This time of night, adults are still preserving their
6: candy stockpiles. These amateurs... She gestured to the little vampires and witches and princesses fluttering around us. Looking at one, maybe two pieces per stop.
5: Yeah, the first hour is for kitties and bedwetters. The last hour, that's where it's at.
9: Once the crowds start thinning out and the adults start realizing they're going to be stuck with four unopened bags of Reese's Pieces, one or two becomes four or five real quick.
10: And when it comes right down to the wire, four or five becomes all you can carry.
6: They'd really thought about this. I didn't know why they hadn't mentioned it before, but it did make a sort of sense. Alright, well, what are we supposed to do until then? Using only their eyes, Jules and Jack looked at each other, then at me. Yeah, about that. Go on.
5: The The Ruin house.
6: House. I mentioned earlier the possibility of one of us one day trying our hands at some of the local urban legends. Well, in our town, none loomed larger or cast a heavier shadow than the Ruin House. Deep in the woods surrounding our neighborhood, there's an old house. Who built it when? Who lived there? Who first called it the Ruin House once upon a time? No one knew, but there it was, what's left of it, at least. The roof and two of the walls were clean gone, leaving a moldering foundation and two partial walls that came together to make a single corner. In one of the partial walls, a wooden door miraculously still on its hinges. In the other, a fireplace and chimney miraculously intact. Finding it is easy. Walking up to it is easy. The legend itself is common knowledge. No, it's the next part that put my stomach into freefall and turned my blood into ice water. According to legend, there's one night of the year where if you go to the Ruin House alone and knock on the door in just the right way, the door will open by itself. And what you see on the other side... Well... No one knows for sure. Whatever it is, you're different afterwards. And it goes without saying, I think, that the one night of the year is Halloween. Rumor has it a high school girl named Dee Dee Cooper went to the Ruin House last Halloween and did the knock. Two light knocks followed by the words trick or treat. These steps repeated two more times. Though she said nothing happened, Her friends and family noticed an immediate change in her demeanor. She didn't quite look like herself, they said. She didn't quite sound like herself. She started acting out. Her grades bottomed out. Her laugh became a high-pitched cackle and sometimes everything was funny and sometimes nothing was funny for days. In December, her eyes, hair, and skin began to lose their color. Say towards the end, she looked like a popsicle with the flavor sucked out. New stories about Dee Dee Cooper ended with her getting caught trying to burn her family's house down and laughing that new, insane laugh of hers all the way into a police car. She got pulled out of school. The Coopers put a for sale sign in their yard, and as far as information trickling down to the middle school ranks goes, that was that. We can't just go to the Ruin House. It doesn't work unless you're alone. We already did it. You what?
9: Yeah, I came early like I said I was going to, and got bored. When Jack showed up, I told him what I'd done, and and he did it too.
6: I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yesterday. Geez, earlier today. Going to the Ruin House on Halloween night would have been like us deciding to steal a car and drive it off a bridge. And now, here they were talking about it like it was a trip to the gas station. Well, what happened? What do you mean, what happened? Nothing happened.
7: It's not real, Esther.
6: Jack was chewing on something crunchy. A peanut M&M, maybe.
5: It's just a story.
6: Though none of us ever mentioned it, the Halloween Jules and Jack braved Mr. Honeycutt's porch while I watched from the street left an indefinable distance between us. The fact that it was never spoken of and maybe couldn't be spoken of made it worse. For that whole year, they were together and I was apart. Just like right now. The only difference this year there was still time. Doing my best imitation of casual. Okay, so if I go knock on that stupid door, when I get back, we can finally start hitting some houses? Duh. I mean, it's not like we got all dressed up for nothing. Where our neighborhood ends, a trail picks up and bends into the woods. That's where Jules and Jack stopped walking. A ghost and a devil watched a skeleton vanish into the night, like I'd been dropped in lake water. As I walked, the sounds of a Halloween in full swing faded into chirring crickets and leaves crunching beneath my tennis shoes. At first, everything was darkness. After a minute or two, my eyes began to adjust— the moon washing the trail in trees in deep shades of blue. Up above, a slight breeze swayed tree branches back and forth, like the woods were breathing. I was a manageable amount of nervous. More than anything, every footstep felt like it was bringing me closer to Jules and Jack, not closer to danger, even in the mostly dark. I knew these woods like the back of my head, I know that's not the saying, but I always thought it should be. The real saying is, like the back of my hand. But if I was in a room full of people, and if I saw myself from behind, of course I'd know it was me. Who else could it be? That's how well I know myself. Anyway, that's how I knew I was getting close. That's how I knew where to leave the trail. Soon, the familiar silhouette of the ruin house rose up in front of me. Two jagged walls and a looming chimney made from smooth river stones. The door was right where it was supposed to be, fastened tight and seemingly immovable on its rusted out hinges. And Because I knew there was nothing worse in heaven and hell than being alone and afraid, I knocked. Two quick knocks that sounded more like a heartbeat than knuckles on wood. Trick-or-treat. 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 Under no circumstances should that door have been capable of moving. But it did. The impossible unspooling right before my eyes. Adrenaline going off inside me like fireworks. The door opened inward with a long, screeching, metal-on-metal creak. Revealing a room that had no earthly business being there. Four walls and a ceiling, instead of cool night air, sky, and stars. Clean floorboards, instead of a layer of dead leaves over top a hundred years of wet, rotting leaves. From every other angle, the ruin house was unchanged. Impossible. But what did that matter? The room that should not have been was empty, except for three large burlap bags in the middle of the floor. The bags were stood on end and tied off with leather cords. A snapping fire in the fireplace cast the room in a warm orange glow, The three bags throwing long shadows across the floor and against the far wall. I must have been breathing. The blood thrumming through my neck and ears must have been put there by a beating heart. I must have entered the room. I don't really remember doing any of those things. But there I was, standing over the first bag, pulling on the leather cord. I didn't want to see what was inside, but I also had to. The cord came free. Inside the bag was what used to be Jack. Identifiable mostly by his devil costume. There were two bloody holes where his eyes had been. His nose, lips, and ears were severed. The wounds so new they glistened in the firelight. His fingers and toes were gone. Leaning against his shoulder was his plastic trident. When the bag unloosened a little more, the trident fell to the floor with a hollow thwack. I pulled the leather cord on the next bag. It opened. Inside, a white sheet with two eye holes. At least the sheet used to be white. Like all butcher paper used to be white. Like the mutilated body underneath used to belong to Jules. I didn't need to lift the sheet to know that. The head slumped forward and blood oozed from the eye holes like syrup. The third bag twitched, like whatever was inside had been startled awake. I jumped back, terror pulling at my skin from the inside. Hello? My entire body having ceased, the word barely escaped my throat. Nothing. Hello? The room was still. The bag was still. The fire crackled. Then, muffled, barely audible, a voice came from inside the bag. Hello? Followed by more movement. Fingers wriggled through the opening and tugged at the leather cord. The bag sloughed away. Someone wearing a black and white skeleton bodysuit and skull mask rose up out of the opening. We stared at each other. Hello? The voice was shaky and thin, like mine had been, except more like an imitation. Like it was amused by how afraid I was. I ran for the door, but it was gone. I turned and pressed my back against the brick wall where the door should have been. The skeleton costume was coming towards me. My legs gave out and I slid to the floor. The skeleton stopped, cocked its head, then took another step. The fire dwindled. The room drew dim then dark. Inside that darkness, the bones and skull mask burnt a faint orange, catching the last traces of guttering flames. They were right on top of me. The fire went out. If Jules and Jack hadn't been to any houses yet, what were they eating? Why didn't I wonder that then? That was my last thought. Hello? Jules and Jack were waiting for me at the edge of the woods. Well? Jack was twirling his trident. What happened? Nothing happened. I shrugged. It's just a story. Just a story. We stood shoulder to shoulder. The neighborhood spread out before us like a segmented sheet cake. The moon glowing bright as midday sun. Trick or treaters buzzed and flitted in and out of shadows, while adults looked on, smug, so sure of what was child and what was mask. Down the street, Mr. Honeycutt let out a melodic howl. Remember when we all met for the first time? I smiled. You mean, just now? She smiled. Yeah. Jack looked into his bag.
5: I'm almost empty. How's yours?
6: Same. Esther? I bit into an ear and pulled. Came apart like old fruit leather. Could be fuller. And so we hoisted our bags over our shoulders and ran disappearing into that cool night air lit by candles and porch light, tinged with rotting crab apples, burning leaves, and the sound of our new laughter together.
1: school can be an awkward time. Even more awkward when you just moved to town and you're the new girl. There's a lot to learn about the place. But in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew K. Lehman, Melissa not only has to juggle new teachers and friends, but also the rumors about the school and its dark and out-of-bounds gymnasium. Performing this tale are Lindsay Russo, Katabel Ansari, Kyle Akers, Tanya Milozovich, and Mick Wingert. So take those urban legends seriously. There's good reasons why you must never attempt to make Jerry's run.
8: I'm not afraid of ghosts. Not to say I don't believe in them, but while I consider myself reasonably skeptical, I've always been more curious than scared of the idea of the supernatural. Honestly, I wish I was scared of them. Maybe that would have been enough to avoid the incident that has haunted me ever since. It started with Kendra Reese. I was a new student at the high school of a small town in Pennsylvania, and she'd been assigned as my guide to show me around. She carried a sort of bored edginess I associated with angsty loners. Her hair looked messy in a deliberate way, like she styled it to make an ironic statement against styling your hair. The front desk secretary introduced us and gave Kendra a copy of my schedule, and then she was out the door without another word. I caught up just in time to see her toss the paper into a garbage bin. We walked down a wide hall lined with lockers, bulletins, and school posters. Occasionally, we passed a classroom where teachers could be heard droning their lectures. The school had a dismal atmosphere, and seemed darker than it should. Like, faulty wiring plagued the whole building.
11: So, where's your first class?
8: Ignoring the fact that she just trashed her copy of my schedule, I held up mine and said, Room C3, Mr. Boxley.
11: Cool, so I guess I'll catch you after. She then took off
8: in another direction.
11: Shocked, I asked, Where is it? Uh, I don't know. Just ask the teacher.
8: The teacher who's in the room that I don't know where to find? She rushed off and left me alone in the hallway. Great! I spent the next few minutes studying the map and the school pamphlet, heading off at a brisk pace as soon as I spotted my first class way on the other side of the building. The school was eerily quiet, aside from the occasional voice of a teacher or student in a classroom. The only noise was the buzzing of the lights. Something about the place gave me the creeps. Between the dull lights and the empty hallways, I kept expecting to see someone watching me from around a corner, or maybe some old janitor walking by muttering cryptically. The place felt like the setting to a horror movie. My face was buried in the map when I looked up and saw the entrance to the gym. While waiting for Kendra in the office, I'd been flipping through the pamphlet out of sheer boredom when I came upon the school rules and policies. At the top of that page in big, bold letters were the words, The gymnasium is strictly off-limits. Below that, it listed several consequences for breaking that rule, including suspension and even possible expulsion. But no reason was given for that peculiar order. I'd skimmed over it at the time, but that warning came right back to me as I stared at the entrance. It was a pair of double doors with a heavy padlock chain wrapped several times around the handles. As if that weren't enough, multiple signs saying things like, keep out and off limits, were plastered all over the doors. Subtle, I thought. That morbid curiosity of mine drew me right up to the doors. There was just enough of a crack between them to peer inside. Utter blackness greeted me, and despite my better judgment, I actually considered pulling on the doors to try and widen the crack. Excuse me. I jumped and turned to see Principal Albright approaching. Although I hadn't met him yet, his face was plastered on the homepage of the school website. I could tell by his expression and his almost menacing walk that he was not happy to see me here. Things weren't shaping up for a good first impression.
1: What
5: do you think you're doing?
8: He loomed over me, cocking an eyebrow at the gym doors. I, uh, sorry, I was looking for my first class and, uh... I trailed off, unable to think up an excuse.
5: You must be the new student. Melissa Carver I nodded Where's your new student guide
8: Even though she'd abandoned me in the middle of an unfamiliar school I didn't want to rat her out and make an immediate enemy So I just painted my face with an oblivious look and shrugged dumbly
5: Fine let's get you to class
8: He led me to the classroom where I met Mr Boxley and took my assigned seat Throughout class, a couple of the students cast curious and even suspicious glances my way. Afterward, I wandered towards my next class, still feeling out of sorts. Even among the students, the atmosphere at this place was so different from my last school. Everyone seemed reserved and melancholy, like something here had drained the energy from them. Along the way, I bumped into Kendra.
11: Hey, find your way?
8: A thick haze of perfume she hadn't been wearing before assaulted me only vaguely disguising the hint of cigarette smoke. This must be why she volunteered to be a student guide in the first place. Easy way to sneak out for a quick puff. Before I could decide whether or not to give her grief for ditching me, both of us were startled by Mr. Albright suddenly appearing through the crowd.
5: Ms. Reese, can you explain to me why you were neglecting your duty as a new student guide?
8: She stammered for a second, but I cut in. I'm sorry, Principal Albright. It's my fault. I figured I didn't need a guide and just tried to find my own way before she got to the office. He studied us both, and I hoped he wouldn't notice the poorly hidden smell around Kendra.
5: Just get to class. Don't let me catch you lollygagging again, either of you.
8: I gave a stiff nod and tried to walk away, hoping Kendra would follow. Mr. Albright stopped me mid-step.
5: And Miss Carver, I would ask you to observe all the school rules here.
8: He gave me a cautionary look, and I knew without having to ask what he was referring to. With that, he turned and disappeared down the hall.
11: Hey, uh, thanks for having my back there. I shrugged. It's nothing.
8: We stood in awkward silence for a few seconds.
11: Wanna hang out with me and my friends for lunch?
8: Thankfully, she didn't abandon me this time, and we shared the following two classes before lunch. After getting our food, she led me to a couple of benches near a basketball court behind the school. Two other students sat chatting there, one of them a tall, lanky boy, the other a skinny girl with frizzy hair and thick-framed glasses.
11: Hey guys, this is Melissa. They both gave cautious waves. This is Travis and Sandy.
8: Kendra then gestured at me.
11: She's cool. Didn't even write me out to the principal. You
7: almost got caught smoking again? Shut up!
8: She punched Travis in the arm as I took a seat. So, where are you from? Ohio. My parents and I just moved here.
3: Oh, well, welcome to our little town of Penny. (laughs) Hope you like small towns in the middle of nowhere.
7: Yeah, this place sucks. You have to drive like 30 miles to the closest Walmart.
8: I shrugged. Yeah, that's kind of why we moved here. My parents wanted somewhere quiet and out of the way. It didn't take long for me to relax around them. Most of the questions came from Sandy, who seemed sheltered and had a lot to ask about life beyond this town. Travis mostly just badmouthed different parts of the town, often followed by a punch in the arm from Kendra. I thought that was excessive, but figured that was just the kind of friendship they had. At some point, I realized we were sitting right outside the forbidden gym, Like the interior entrance, the double doors here were chained, padlocked, and plastered with keep-out signs. Someone even bothered to board up all of the windows. What's the deal with the gym? The shift in the mood was immediate and palpable. Each of them threw a cautious glance at the doors before facing me with tense expressions.
11: We're not supposed to talk about it. Don't be a pussy.
8: I noticed the way Sandy seemed to shrink back, looking down. Kendra then looked at me.
11: It's haunted.
8: I wasn't sure whether to roll my eyes or ask for more details, so I kept quiet.
11: Back in the 80s, there was a basketball player named Jerry Harmon, who was found dead in the locker room right before a big game. His body was near the showers and covered in blood.
7: That part's a myth. My uncle was on the basketball team. He said there weren't any injuries. It was like he just laid down and died.
8: Kendra punched him in the arm. Shush. The way she kept doing that was starting to get on my nerves. She resumed the creepy cadence and went on.
11: After that, weird things started happening at the school, especially in the gym. Students and staff reported hearing sneakers running inside when the lights were out and nobody was in there. Some even said they saw Jerry's ghost watching through the windows.
8: So they closed off the gym?
11: Not exactly. At first, the staff tried to ignore it, but then it turned into sort of a game for the students. When the gym was empty and the lights were off, kids would dare each other to run from one end to the other. As the story goes, if it's dark enough, Jerry might come out and you can hear his sneakers running behind you. People started calling it Jerry's Run. It wasn't a big deal at first, until students started dying. That caught my attention. The first one happened about a year after Jerry's death. A new student took the dare, but he didn't make it to the other side. His friends looked inside and found his body just feet away from the door. Police couldn't figure out what happened, and the news reported it as a heart attack. A heart attack in a 16-year-old kid. Then it happened again in the early 90s. Three deaths in the same place are more than a coincidence. So the school locked up the gym and banned anyone from going in. Since then, gym class and sporting events were all held outside,
8: I had to admit, at some point I'd become enraptured by her delivery and tingles started crawling along my skin, but I tried to play
11: it off as nothing. Why not just tear it down? They considered it, but no one wanted to take the job. Word got around fast and no one wanted to take the risk. This part of the country is kind of a hot spot for the supernatural.
3: The adults don't like to talk about it, but you can tell they believe. Lots of hauntings here and in the surrounding towns. There was a big stir a couple years ago at this really creepy haunted museum. They'd just hired a new security guard and he died mysteriously on his first shift. So yeah, people don't always dismiss the supernatural around here. Have any
8: of you made Jerry's run? Sandy and Travis both looked at Kendra.
11: I did. Sort of. Sort of? I made it halfway
0: before
7: she bitched out.
8: Kendra slugged him in the arm. Dick, you
11: bitched out before you even opened the doors. So did you, you know, hear the footsteps? Yup, I heard them running at me from the direction of the lockers and I no doubt.
8: I couldn't decide whether to be captivated or to blow it off a small town rumor. It was one thing for a town to have its own urban legend surrounding an off-limits gym. It was another to say you actually had a close encounter with the ghost itself. But someone could have just been pranking Kendra. The conversation died as the bell rang, but my eyes were drawn back to the gym doors. I wondered if that history was the reason behind the bleak atmosphere of the school. Could the simple awareness of the dark past have that kind of effect on the people around it? That stuck with me for weeks after. The logical side of my mind battled with the more curious part that wanted to believe in things beyond human understanding. I tried to play it safe, like everyone else, and keep my distance from the gym. But then it happened. It was a month after I first came to the school. By now, Kendra and her friends had fully accepted me into their circle. I made a few other acquaintances and quickly learned that everyone seemed to know everyone here, and everyone seemed to have some connection, whether a distant relative or a friend of a friend to the alleged ghost haunting the gym. We sat and chatted in the same spot behind the school during lunch. Kenra and Travis were laughing over a video on her phone. Apparently the star athlete of the school took the dare to make Jerry's run and his friends posted a video of him entering the gym and immediately running back out, literally crying. I couldn't help feeling pity for the guy and how this would affect his reputation. I noticed how Sandy actively avoided watching the video with them. She seemed to go quiet whenever the gym was brought up. Has anyone ever made it all the way through?
11: Not since the 90s. Last one to make it was some student named... I think Tammy Hawkins or Halsey or something like that.
7: How badass would it be if Melissa here was the first one to make the run in like 30 years?
8: I don't know what possessed me at that moment. Maybe I wanted to prove myself to my new peers... Maybe I wanted to face the fears that everyone else shied away from. Maybe I wasn't even thinking at all. Whatever the reason, I looked at them and simply said, Okay. It took them a moment to register that. What? I'll do it. The others glanced uncertainly between each other and me. You mean... I'll do Jerry's run. Stunned silence followed for a minute. I could tell by his expression that Travis was trying to pass it off as a joke before he realized I meant it. Sandy looked uneasy. I don't think that's... Kendra shushed her and leaned forward, meeting my eyes with an intensity I'd never seen in her before. Are you sure? Others have done it, I said with a forcing shrug. You did it. Not really. That earned him another punch in the arm. Kendra's gaze never left mine.
11: If you do this, you'll officially be the most badass person I've ever met. We could get in huge trouble. Don't be a pussy. I felt
8: a twinge of anger, though I kept it to myself. Surprisingly, Sandy didn't back down like normal. We can't even get in. The doors are padlocked. I'll handle that. I didn't bother to ask what she meant by that. I'm serious. I'll do it. And that was it. We agreed to meet at 8 when the school would be empty. I told my parents I was going out with some friends, and they didn't seem concerned at all. I think they were just happy to see me socializing and didn't even question why I was going out in my running shoes and shorts. Sandy was already there when I drove up and parked my car. Despite the rules, apparently these guys weren't too concerned about security. This place didn't even have a fence. As I stepped out, Sandy shuffled nervously up to me.
3: Hey. Hey. Um, so you're really serious about
8: this? Feigning confidence, I shrugged like it was no big deal. Why? I could tell from the look in her eyes that she was genuinely concerned, maybe even distressed, and my heart melted a little. Honestly, it's kind of stupid. In Ohio, I took a dare to prank one of my teachers and it went south. I chickened out and ended up getting my friends and me caught. We got in trouble and they always held that against me. I guess I just wanted to redeem myself.
3: You don't have to prove anything here, though. You've only been here a month. It's a fresh start. Nobody dared you to make the run.
8: Yeah, but it's not like there's actually a ghost in there, right? She fidgeted with her fingers.
3: The last student who died? My mom was dating him at the time.
8: That kind of surprised me. Had she ever shared this with anyone? I felt like it would have come up if Kendra and Travis knew. What happened? She gave him the dare
3: when they were just students here. It was just a stupid joke, but he did it. She waited on the other side and heard footsteps running up to the door... But then they stopped. She opened the door after a minute, and she said that she saw a ghost standing there.
8: I stared at her in shock. Was it Jerry? She shook her head.
3: She doesn't know. She was so scared that she ran away screaming. The next day, her boyfriend's body was discovered in the gym, and that's when they closed it. She's never really gotten over the guilt.
8: I studied Sandy, trying to tell if this was an act for the hype. The look in her eyes was one of genuine worry, and in the time I'd gotten to know her, I never figured her to be a liar or a good actor. I wished I could give her some compelling reason why I wanted to do this, but I didn't have any personal stake in it or some dark secret in my past as motivation.
3: Kendra doesn't understand how serious this is. It's a lot more real for me because of my mom. She's always drilled it into my head to stay away from that gem. So... I guess I'm just trying to figure out why you're suddenly so interested.
8: Honestly, I don't really know what to tell you. I've always been kind of fascinated by the supernatural, so I guess I genuinely just want to know. That answer still didn't seem to satisfy her. Ultimately, I just offered her a reassuring smile. It'll be okay. I can run pretty fast. Melissa, I really don't think that... Before she could finish, Kendra and Travis finally arrived, and Sandy immediately went quiet and shied away. Over the past month, I'd become increasingly aware of the way Kendra always seemed to overshadow her.
11: Okay, we're ready.
8: Kendra jangled a set of keys in front of me.
11: Do I even want to know how you got those? A magician never reveals her
8: secrets. She was weirdly animated in a way I'd never seen before. Like this was the most exciting thing to ever happen to her.
7: She offered the janitor a few
10: packs of her dad's
7: cigarettes.
11: Dick.
8: Kendra gave him a sarcastic punch in the
11: arm. Whatever, let's hurry up and do this before we're caught.
8: Travis headed off around the side of the building, followed by Sandy after she gave me one more apprehensive look. Kendra and I entered the school through a side door and went right for the gym. It was extremely dark inside, only dimly lit by the streetlights seeping through the windows, and we had to use our phones to guide our way. If I thought the school looked like a horror movie during the day, then this was definitely the part where the killer lurked nearby ready for his ambush. The absolute silence was deafening, and I debated more than ever whether to turn back. We arrived at the gym doors, and Kendra wasted no time removing the padlock and chains.
11: We'll lock it back up when we leave. Give me a couple minutes to get outside so I can record it. Record it? Are you planning on posting this? "'Hell yeah. Don't worry. You do this, no one's ever gonna doubt you. You'll be an official badass.'" "'Aren't you worried about getting us expelled?' She waved me off. "'They just say that to scare students away. It's total bullshit. You got this.'"
8: I took a deep breath, jogging a little in place to work out the jetters. "'All right. See you on the other side.'" Then, for the second time since we'd met, she left me alone in the middle of the school, at this point, I know what you're probably thinking. This is the kind of decision idiots make in horror films right before getting killed. But this was real life. I wasn't afraid of ghosts, remember? I pulled open the doors and met a yawning darkness. A musty odor greeted me. Even standing in the entrance, I could tell that something was off. It felt as though it wasn't just an absence of light. But the dark itself was a physical thing. It felt heavy, almost humid. Like I was literally walking into the jaws of the beast. Taking a deep breath, I stepped in and closed the doors behind me. As soon as the blackness engulfed me, every cell in my body wanted to bail. But I knew if I backed out now, I'd have this hanging over me for the rest of high school and maybe beyond. I'd lose the respect of the only friends I'd made here, and I did not want to go through that again. I started running, virtually blind. I could make out the hint of dim light barely peeking underneath the exit opposite from me, and I made a beeline for that light. It shouldn't have been that far, but somehow it felt miles away. Every echo of my footsteps sent a jolt up my spine, like the darkness itself was a living thing and I was disturbing its peace. I thought the air would be dry and dusty and thick with the smell of rat crap. Instead, it almost seemed moist but cold, like the chill after rain. And the smell... I hadn't noticed it at first, but the further I ran, the more I became aware of a stench that reminded me of sewage and something else, some sort of sickly, rotting odor. I had to be at least halfway at this point. I allowed myself a sense of anticipation, knowing I was almost there, and that's when I tripped. Yes, I know, I'm a walking horror cliche, but the thing is, I didn't just randomly stumble over my own feet. As I slammed into the ground and lost all the air in my lungs, it only just registered in my mind that it felt like something had reached out and tripped me. Did I imagine that? Seconds later, I heard a sound like something wet dragging itself along the floor. The smell had become nauseating, and I distinctly felt something cold and moist brush against my calf. I tried to scream, but all I could manage was a choked gasp as I scrambled to my feet, sprinting for the tiny light on the other side of the gym. That's when I heard it. I didn't immediately register it as it started off quiet, but it quickly picked up both volume and pace. Footsteps running behind me. In my panic, I only barely realized that it was not a pair of sneakers, but what sounded like wet, bare feet slapping against the floor. I became hysterical as I pushed my body beyond its limits. I know that I said I'm not afraid of ghosts, but if you were running blindly in the dark and heard that sound, you'd freak out too. I collided with the doors, which thankfully burst open at my assault. With everything else that happened, I honestly hadn't expected them to, and I did not hesitate to push my way through and slam them shut. A sudden uproar of whooping and hollering startled me. I spun around as Kendra and the others surrounded me, cheering. She was holding her phone up to record the whole thing, and she put her arm around my shoulders and turned the phone for a selfie shot with me.
11: You saw it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Melissa Carver just made Jerry's run and is officially a total badass.
8: More cheering from her and Travis followed, and even Sandy threw her arms around me, though I wasn't sure if it was in congratulations or relief.
11: All right, losers, let's get out of here.
8: As we walked away from the gym, I took one last look behind, almost expecting someone or something to burst through those doors. But they remained closed, and I heard no other sound. While Travis hurried to lock up the doors on both sides, Kendra and Sandy escorted me back to my car, clearly seeing how shaken I was. That wet, slapping sound of feet continued to echo in my mind, and at some point I remembered that feeling of something touching my leg. I checked my calf and was shocked to find a dark, wet smear there. I wiped at it with my sleeve and sniffed it, wincing at the same stench of sewage and decay from the gym. A day later, I sat on my bed, my unfinished homework in front of me. I couldn't stop thinking about the gym. My friends and I had celebrated by going out and getting some ice cream and watching the recording several times over, but we didn't talk much about it beyond that. They asked me if I heard Jerry's footsteps, but after I answered in a daze that I had, they seemed to know not to question me further. Since then, I'd been trying to get it off my mind, but it lingered there constantly. A chime from my phone brought me back to my thoughts. It was a text from Kendra with a video attachment. Holy shit. Did you see this? I opened the video and wasn't surprised to see the recording of my panicked emergence from the gym. Confused, I texted her back. What am I supposed to see? A moment later, she replied.
11: Look inside the door right before you close it.
8: A mix of foreboding and irritation crept into my chest. Why couldn't she just tell me? I turned up the screen's brightness and played the clip at a slower speed. My heart dropped when I saw it. I was so dumbstruck that I had to play it back just to make sure it wasn't some glitch in the recording. In the instant before I shut the door, a figure appeared in the opening. It was so dark and happened so fast that I wasn't surprised none of us had noticed it before. But the more I watched, the more clearly I could see it. There was another person in there with me. Reaching from the dark right behind me before I shut the door on them. I paused the video and zoomed in, trying to get a clearer look. Through the heavy pixelation, I was able to make out a few details. It wasn't what or who I expected. It was not some student from the 80s in a basketball jersey or any student at all that may have died in that gym. It was a woman. Not a young woman that could pass as a teenager, but a lady probably in her 40s or 50s, though it was hard to tell. She wore a frilly red blouse that was torn and soggy, with matching smeared lipstick contrasting against her ghostly gray skin. Her dark hair looked like it had been curled before turning into a wet, disheveled mess. She might have been beautiful if not for the way her mouth stretched into an unnaturally wide, silent wail. My skin crawled, and I found myself looking around my room as if expecting to find something waiting to pounce on me. Another text from Kendra startled me. Did you see it? My mind tried to rationalize it. I doubted my friends would have pulled this off as a prank, but maybe someone else? The only other person I could think of was the janitor. I doubted he would have had enough time or interest to put something together like this. I texted Kendra. Oh my God, this is a joke, right?
11: No, I swear we didn't set this up.
8: While I debated with myself whether I could trust her, I kept watching the video. It didn't look like the woman was after me. Her arms were outstretched but it wasn't me that she was reaching for. If anything, she seemed to be reaching for the exit as I slammed the door in her face. Who is that? I texted.
11: I have no idea. Who cares? This makes it so much more legit.
8: With a frown, I asked her not to post it on social media. This of course spurred her into a fit of pleas, but I stayed firm even when she told me not to be a pussy. As much as she wanted to share proof that I had made it all the way through Jerry's run, I didn't want to draw attention to this new discovery. Besides, I was still worried about the trouble we'd get in with the school. In the end, Kendra begrudgingly agreed not to share the video. I obsessed about it for days. My friendship with Kendra, and by extension Travis, began to fizzle out at that point. But Sandy and I actually grew closer. With her help, I did a lot of research on past victims of Jerry's run and their relatives, but I couldn't find anything. I still hadn't let go of the possibility that someone was fooling with us. The more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that this was genuine. There was no way that someone would just be lying in wait, made up to look like a shrieking ghost. I questioned if Kendra would have tried to pull this off to make it look more genuine. But Sandy said she knew Kendra well enough to know she would never have put that much effort into something like this. It was purely by accident that I finally found my mystery woman weeks later... A news article randomly popped up in my search engine feed. Local woman's death continues to baffle investigators. The instant I saw the image of the victim, I knew that it was her. Her name was Tamara Hawthorne, age 46. The photo was taken at a work party earlier on the day that she was found dead. And there were obvious differences. She was alive, smiling, and vibrant. But she had that same blouse, red lipstick, and curly hair. The last time anyone saw her alive was when she left the party a little after 7 p.m. Police later received a call about a crashed car off the freeway, and they found her body somewhere in the woods several dozen meters away from the car. They found no obvious injuries or cause of death, and they never figured out exactly what killed her. One thing forensics did note was her scraped up bare feet. Her high heels were found abandoned closer to the car, like she'd been running from something and had kicked them off bare feet. Somehow that was the detail that struck me above the rest, and I knew I had found my ghost. But something else frightened me more than this discovery. According to the article, her body was found around 8 p.m. outside of a town approximately 130 miles away from here, around the time that I made Jerry's run. So why did the ghost of a woman who had died near a town two hours away suddenly appear in the supposedly haunted gym? What was the connection? I did eventually find it. In her obituary, it mentioned that Tamara grew up in the same town where I now live. Something in my head clicked in place, and with a growing dread, I called Sandy. What was the name of the last student to finish Jerry's run?
3: I can't remember exactly. Um, it started with a T? Tara or something?
8: Tamara Hawthorne?
3: Yeah, that sounds right. Why, is, is everything Okay.
8: I hung up, too stunned to say anything or reply when she started sending me texts. There it was. Tamara Hawthorne made it all the way through Jerry's run as a student here and had now turned up dead 30 years later. But it wasn't that specifically that horrified me at the moment. It was the last thing I discovered in the video right before making that connection. On probably my hundredth viewing, something occurred to me. As I observed before, it looked like she was reaching, almost leaping, not for me, but for the exit. As I looked closer, I realized with a shrinking dread that just as I turned to push the doors closed, she was suddenly jerked back into the darkness. Not like she stopped or retreated, but like something yanked her back. When I looked even closer, I could just barely make out what looked like a black, wet, twisted appendage like something between a tentacle and a spider leg with too many joints, lashing out and ripping her back into the dark. Everyone who'd heard the legend of Jerry operated under the assumption that the haunting was limited strictly to the gym. But after what I saw, I realized the truth. Something lived in there that had a much greater reach than just the gym or even the school. How many other unexplained deaths around here were tied to this thing? How long before I would be counted among them? Tamara made it for 30 years, but it still got her in the end. I couldn't help but feel it had specifically chosen that night to take her and allow me to see her, like it was warning me or taunting me. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night to the faint smell of sewage and rot, and I think I can see twisted limbs in the shadows from my window. But when I look, it's just the branches of the tree outside, and the smell is gone. I don't know if it's real or if I'm just imagining it, but I make sure to never be alone anywhere in town, especially when it's dark. And I absolutely keep my distance from the gym and tell anyone who will listen to never make Jerry's run. I'm not afraid of ghosts. Monsters are a different story.
1: When you're a teenager, you're enveloped in a mixture of boredom, raging hormones, and a desire to experience something more in life. Getting high, getting laid, just getting away from it all. But in this tale, shared with us by author Cody Baggerly, we meet a man who recalls a dark experience when he was a teen, one he can never forget. Performing this tale is Graham Rowett. So listen for those low rumbles, dread being drawn back to that fear and its thunderstorms.
5: When I was growing up, there was this house that all the kids liked to sneak off to. You took a ride off Main Street, all the way to the edge of town, then hook another right onto Francis. You followed an old paved road covered in cracks that spread like the limbs of an old oak. Next, you'd drive a good five miles, and then turn onto one of those old country roads covered in loose gravel that no one ever bothered to name, registered under a number buried so deep in old court records that it would take a full-scale excavation to uncover. Go somewhere around 15 minutes that way. ...around some sharp curves and up and down more than a few hills... and when you're truly lost, you're almost there. After that, it's just a few more minutes down an even older, rutted driveway. As far as anyone in town knew... ...whoever owned the house last must have died off without a beneficiary... ...because no one claimed it or put any care into its well-being for generations. But when you're a horny kid just looking for a place to get a little wasted on a Friday night... You don't really put much thought into the logistics of ownership for the abandoned house you and your older siblings before you and your parents before them are squatting in. There was just something about that old house, some type of allure to it that brought congregations of the town's youth out there to act a fool for generations. No amount of parental lectures or police raids by the same hypocrites who did the same damn thing when they were kids could ever dissuade any of us. We were teenagers, dammit. We knew best, and there was just something too irresistible about that old antebellum, way out there in its own little world. The house itself stood tall and proud, despite being well over a hundred years old. You could even see some of the paint left. Well, the paint that hadn't quite peeled off yet, almost looked royal with those old columns lining the front of the wraparound porch. The house was three stories tall and despite the wear and tear, there was something noble about it. The house was old, but it was made from strong bones and seemed to grow out of the soil itself from even stronger roots. I'm not quite sure what made me think of that house tonight. I hadn't really put much thought into it in several years, not since I put that town in my rear view. Moved upstate, then out of state, and just kept going till I reached the coast. I've been too busy to revel in nostalgia, but I just can't seem to get my mind off it tonight. Not since that kid. Coming in earlier, I noticed the garden at the base of my apartment complex that always smells of fresh flowers, and inexplicably, like spring year round, had taken a sour turn. Instead of lilacs, It was like I stepped into that old, dilapidated front room, permeating a stench of upturned soil and rotting wood, oddly relaxing in a graveside funeral kind of way. I shower to clear my head and cleanse my sense of smell, to wash away nature's decay from my nostrils. But all I feel is a heavy downpour under that old elm out front, the only tree growing in what had to have once been a beautiful yard. I close my eyes, and it's a cold spring night all over again. The white dots when I shut my eyes real tight even look like little stars speckled behind the storm clouds, fighting to be seen and losing definitively. Before I get too lost into some old, nearly forgotten reverie, I shamble my thoughts to that kid at the bodega earlier this afternoon. No taller than 5'4", slim as a budding willow, and hair the color of mud under a midnight sky. I swear to God he could have been you. Twenty years ago, that kid would have damn near been your twin. I don't know. Maybe it was just the baseball cap. The red one. It was a lot like the one you wore that night. At the house. I opened my fridge, hoping to find a little relief from my uneasy stomach. But all I find is that bottle of Carlsberg beer you stole from your brother's stash. The twin to the one you drank earlier in the night when we first got to the house and realized it was just going to be us. It was surprisingly bright for midnight. I still remember how clearly I could see you, even without a campfire. I remember that beer, too. It wasn't cold anymore, but it wasn't quite warm yet, either. Perspiration running down onto my fingers as the contents desperately clung to the last bit of chill. Like a dying man to his last breath. It was absolutely disgusting. But you can't be too picky when you're sixteen. I take a good long drag of that bitter honey. That amber poison. I take that drink that I shouldn't have taken then. All over again. And with it comes the thunder. Faint at first. But steady. Steady. Growing stronger and nearer as I close my eyes to the fresh moonlight peeking out from the clouds. From the kitchen light that suddenly turns into a goddamn beacon. I can handle my alcohol better now than I could then. It made me do things. Things I didn't mean. But I'm better now. Damn it, I know I'm better. The thunder rolls into my head like your closed fist, pounding against my skull like the sirens bearing down on me. Thunder so loud that it almost drowns out my own words.
1: It was
7: an accident! I'm sorry!
5: I see stars. Bright, beautiful stars over the roof of an old house. Please don't tell! I'm so sorry! Then silence. Sweet, comforting, terrifying silence antithesis to that bitter, foul, coppery taste in my mouth. I hold my hands up in the moonlight, under the kitchen's fluorescent beams, and I see the blood. That kid? At the bodega? I could've sworn he was you. I wonder, just for a moment, am I there again, under that old elm outside that old house? Am I with you? Am I there? The sirens come to a halt down by the garden. It wasn't you, after all.
1: In our final tale, we are taken back to Halloween. No, not quite Halloween, but the night before. A night when the teens like to get up to no good and engage in mischievous fun. But in this tale, shared with us by author Chris Alinot, some friends prepare to partake in some good old-fashioned toilet papering of houses and smashing of pumpkins. Shame they had to visit that one particular house. I join Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Mike Delgadio, and Matthew Bradford in performing this tale. So make sure you know who you're dealing with if you decide to get up to no good, especially on Devil's Night.
4: I took the last drag off of my smoke and lit another on the coal. There were only seven left from the pack I got Tim Styles to buy for me last week. And I'd been meaning to share, but screw Jason if he was gonna take all frigging night in the store. As if I'd conjured him, the door of the Fast Mart banged open, and Jason jumped down the steps, prize under his arm. He flipped the six-pack of toilet paper up in the air with his right hand. It turned end over end, and he made a showy, dipping catch with his left hand. Why'd you get the expensive brand? We're not wiping our asses with it.
10: What the hell does the brand matter? Jason looked at the package. I didn't even look at the different kinds. Dude,
4: the brand doesn't matter. We had ten bucks and you just spent six of it so the trees can feel soft little kittens beneath their branches. Oh. Jason frowned. Shit. I guess we can forget about the spray paint. I didn't like cutting Jason down, but this wasn't the first time the big goof had spoiled our plans by doing something stupid. Jason stood in front of the convenience store steps the bag with the toilet paper drooping from one finger at his side. Sorry, man. I gave him a what-the-hell-is-wrong-with-you look, then let it go. He looked pathetic, and besides, it would take a lot more than the wrong toilet paper to ruin the evening. I offered him a smoke. Whatever. It's cool. Let's get going. It's already 11.30. Jason lit up and the night began. Over the next 45 minutes, Jason redeemed himself. He hit on the perfect technique to get the TP super high up in the trees without breaking. The trick, as he demonstrated, was to double up the first two feet or so before lobbing the rest of the roll high into the air.
10: It doesn't hurt that we're using the good stuff. Three quilted plies, man. That's good paper.
4: (laughs) That one got me, and I started to laugh. Later, when the last roll was spent, we went after the pumpkins. We hucked them high over the street to explode with a hollow crunch that was way more satisfying than I can describe. Some of the bigger pumpkins we just stomped on. I'd worn my shit-kicking work boots. The steel toes and plates turned jack-o'-lanterns into paper mache. We laughed at the funny carved faces bulging in dismay as we squished them to death beneath our feet. After about 20 minutes of this, I had to stop on the sidewalk to catch my breath. It might be, might be, that taking up smoking had been a stupid idea.
10: You crapping out already?
4: (laughs) He changed his grip on the pumpkin he was holding. This one had come from Mr. Ellison's porch. The old man was forever yelling at all the kids to get away from his yard, yet, on Halloween... He always decorated his house. Cheap dollar store paper skeletons and monsters swayed from paper tape anchors on his porch. In the middle of the display was a single, exceptionally large pumpkin. It hadn't been carved, and so its destruction was sure to be spectacular. Watch this. Jason picked up the pumpkin in both hands and swung it, granny shot style. He grunted with the effort, and the pumpkin sailed off the porch where it made a perfect landing in the middle of the patio stone walkway. Orange pumpkin guts vomited up and out of a half dozen fissures. A light came on inside the house. We booked it across the street and threw ourselves to the ground behind a hedge. I pulled some of the scratchy cedar boughs aside and took a look. I glanced beside me, and Jason was fumbling with something in his pockets. What are you doing? A moment later, he came up with his phone and aimed it through the opening in the bush.
1: Tick-tock.
10: I should have thought of this earlier.
4: Ellison's door opened. A moment later, the man himself was on the porch, surveying the damage. He honked and sputtered frigging kids so many times that I thought I was going to piss myself laughing. Jason had a hand clamped over his mouth, his shoulders hitched up and down, and his face was turning red. Ellison came running into the middle of the street. Threadbare slippers slapping against the pavement, bellowing about calling the police. Jason was so intent on aiming his phone, he didn't notice Ellison turning toward the bushes where we were hiding. I grabbed his hand and pulled the phone down, letting the gap in the hedge close. From the house next door came a shout to, Shut up, Ellison! We stayed where we were for another five or six minutes before Ellison finally gave up and went back inside. The moment the door slammed shut, we crept slowly between the houses behind us and onto the street beyond. When we got there, we stopped, looked at each other, and burst out laughing.
10: Friggin' kids. <laughs>
4: That got us going again, and I had to rub my pumpkin-sludge-covered hands off on my jeans just so I could wipe the tears from my eyes. By two in the morning, we reached the end of Laurelin Drive and stood staring up a sloped lawn to the enormous house on the corner. An old-fashioned mailbox on a post leaned against the low picket fence identifying the residence as Reynolds. I looked over at Jay. All right, one more, then we call it a night. Jason wasn't looking back at me. His eyes had found something far more interesting. Look at that pumpkin. The jack-o'-lantern on the porch wasn't the biggest we'd seen that night but it sat on an elaborate stand of purple tentacles that raised it off the porch to impressive effect, with sickly purple light flickering through the gaping square-toothed mouth and triangular eye holes. Having it lit before Halloween was supposed to be super bad luck, but from the looks of the rest of the yard, it wasn't as if the guy was unfamiliar with the holiday. The porch itself was covered in fake cobwebs, rubber spiders, and various other decorations. Even the idiotic little gnomes in the garden were dressed in costumes. Whoever this Reynolds guy was, he was a total nut for halloween So why break the holiday's biggest rule? Weird, but whatever. We could talk about it on the way home. Dibs. I could already picture myself ripping those tentacles out and sticking them into the pumpkin's goofy-ass face. Jason's smile faltered.
10: Nah. I don't think we should do this one. I heard the guy's an alien. What? This was the
4: dumbest thing I'd ever heard Jason say, and you'll have to trust me that that was saying something. The guy's name is Reynolds, not- Whoa. Not what I'm saying. Jason's expression was almost comic in its reproach. Don't be racist. Racist? Don't be an ass. What the fuck are you talking about, then? Jason frowned and looked at the house again, scratching his dirty brown
10: hair. I heard he's like a real alien. Like UFOs and shit.
4: I didn't have an immediate answer to that. I looked into Jason's eyes and saw he was serious. I laughed, but it didn't feel like a good laugh, like the kind we've been having all night. You're not normal, man. What the hell do space aliens have to do with Halloween? Even under the yellow streetlight, it was easy to see Jason was turning a deep shade of red.
10: Look, all I know is what Kathy Mussovi told me.
4: He gestured to a bungalow, two houses to the right.
10: She lives over there. and She told me this house was empty for, like, eight months. Then back in spring, after that weird lightning storm, you know, the one that lasted for, like, two days. I nodded. Anyway, Mr. Reynolds was just there. No one saw moving trucks or nothing.
4: I cleared my throat smokes <clears throat> what else did you talk about i've been trying to get kathy to notice me all year and in one night jason was on intimate terms chit-chatting about the neighborhood life and what else
10: we talked about halloween and shit she said her little sister was doing a lame haunted house thing for her friends and kathy was getting all these ideas off the internet I said I wish there was a real haunted house, and she... Did you get with her?
4: Jason knew I was interested in Kathy. Some nights I didn't shut up about her. If he'd moved in on Kathy without considering me at all, I'd... What? Fight? I couldn't take Jason in a fight. A few moments went by, silence growing thick as cobwebs between us. Then a moment of clarity, perhaps. This was Jason. He wouldn't do anything to wreck our friendship, he just wouldn't. But if party logic had been in effect, if drinks were flowing… A low whooping noise split the stillness of the night, and we both jumped. Strobing blue and red light flashed across the yard, our faces, and the front of Reynolds' house. I'd been so focused on how Jay had potentially screwed up my love life that I'd totally missed the cop car's approach. We were boned. To be continued. I muttered to Jason under my breath, then shut up as a thoroughly unimpressed police officer got out of the car and walked toward us shining her flashlight right in our faces.
2: What are you boys doing out so late?
4: Her tone implied that we would be doing ourselves a favor by telling the truth. The truth, however, was not going to get us out of this. At least, not the whole truth. I cut a quick look at Jason, who returned the look with a quick, almost non-existent nod. He'd keep his mouth shut. Jay was bigger and stronger, but when it came to slinging bullshit, I was the king. We heard someone out here. I flashed my best A-plus student smile. My friend had his bike stolen last month. We thought maybe the guys had come back
2: for his new one. You were awake, together, at two in the morning, listening for Bike Thieves. Hearing it back
4: like that, I tried not to let my face show how hard I was cringing inside. The officer flashed her light right at me. Try again. Do better. No, you were watching movies. I snapped my head around to look at him. What the fuck? He was going to screw us both trying to help. I held my tongue. We were all in on Jay's story now.
2: Movies?
10: Yeah. We do it every year. Me and Derek watch all the Friday the 13th movies in a row. We do it every year.
4: He gulped a little at the end, realizing he was repeating himself, perhaps. The cop didn't notice, though.
2: And that took you until two in the morning.
4: She smelled something funny, but she didn't have anything to base it on yet. I was suddenly aware of the pumpkin pulp caked on the bottom of my boots, and was grateful that I was standing on the grass. The cop was still looking at us with the same expression of annoyed expectation. I took a shot. We, um... We finished the three last ones tonight and decided to, uh, to download the new one. We got carried away, I guess. But anyway, while we were waiting for it to finish downloading, I heard some voices out here, and when we looked out my window... We saw some kids out smashing people's pumpkins and shit. Don't say shit in front of a cop, asshole. I slugged him in the arm. He hit me back. Don't say Asshole. Asshole. The punch had nothing behind it. Thankfully, we were back in sync. We might survive this yet.
2: Knock it off.
4: The cop put her flashlight away. Her tone was shifting from suspicion to exasperation. She looked
10: over at Jason.
2: Did you see the kids who were breaking pumpkins?
10: Not their faces. Sorry. But there was like... What, like three of them, Derek? I nodded. Yeah. Three. Uh,
2: one of them's a girl. I'm still not sure that it wasn't you two.
4: The cop looked hard at me now. Her eyes narrowed, and to my continuing surprise, she smiled.
2: What number is the Friday the 13th where they're on a boat? Eight. Eight.
4: I didn't hesitate. Jason's choice of movie to lie about, at least, was on point. We were both freaks for horror movies, and we had indeed sat through most of them several times.
10: Jason takes Manhattan. It's the least bloody of them, though. We skipped to the good stuff in that one. There's only about 20 minutes of good stuff, like the part where the guy gets his head punched off and it totally looks like a styrofoam dummy head, and... Alright,
2: shut up. (laughs) Someone's been disturbing the neighborhood.
4: We started to relax, and she stopped us with a look.
2: I'm not saying you didn't. You probably did. But it's not worth me trying to prove it.
4: She lowered her flashlight.
2: So, this is your one get-out-of-trouble-free card. But here's what's gonna happen right now.
4: She looked at Jason.
2: You're going straight home. Both of you, no stopping. And I'm not going to see either of you on these streets after midnight again.
4: Moving her gaze back to me, she added,
2: And if you actually just admitted to me that you've been illegally downloading movies, I'd suggest you erase them all.
4: She paused, perhaps taking the time of day into consideration.
2: Tomorrow. Okay,
4: yeah. I will as soon as I get home, okay?
2: Fine, and that's right now, correct? We nodded. Mhm. That's what I thought. Now get moving. Get moving.
4: The officer got back in her cruiser. She sat watching us until we started moving. I started up Reynolds' driveway. Feeling the cop still looking at us, I popped Jason on the arm again. This time, he shoved me back, and I had to catch myself before I tripped over one of the stupid gnomes. The cop didn't bother with the siren. Instead, she gave a single blast on the horn. When we looked back, we saw her behind the wheel shaking a finger at us. We nodded in tandem again, as if finishing a performance. The act, however, was a success, and the cruiser backed away and rolled up the street. I patted my jacket, found the smokes, and pulled them out. My hand was trembling a bit. That was too close. I offered Jason a cigarette. He took it, and we lit up. I crushed the empty pack and shoved it into my jacket pocket. Jason stopped where he was on the driveway, about a foot away from the nearest garden gnome which had been painted green with tiny little bolts glued to its neck.
10: Man, this stuff is crazy.
4: Yeah, weird. I tapped Jason on the shoulder. When he turned, I asked him point blank. Look, Kathy, did you kiss her? What happened? No reply. The moment dragged out. Jason stared back at me with his uncomfortably blue eyes. After countless seconds, he shook his head. We talked, man. Get over it. You fucking liar. I knew as I said it that I was hurting our friendship, perhaps for good, but I couldn't help myself now. The anger had welled up from nowhere, and here it was, now, and I wanted answers. You hesitated. You guys did stuff. Admit it. Fine. I kissed her. We kissed. How could you do that to me? My voice was rising, on the verge of becoming a whine. I was afraid I'd start shouting in a minute, which would land us right back in trouble. Right now, I didn't care. I
10: stepped forward. Jason didn't move. Don't you put any of this on me, T. If you're so into her, try talking to her tomorrow. Or maybe, I don't know, at all?
4: His own voice was rising, and I did a quick check of the still-dark windows of Reynolds' house. We'd been in front of this guy's place way too long... If he came out, the cop would be the least of our worries. Picking a fight with Jason right now was idiotic. What the hell was wrong with me? All right. Sorry. I held up a hand to stop Jay from replying. You're right. I've been chicken shit, and it's stupid to get mad at you because you weren't. Jason brightened a bit. We good? He nodded. I nodded back. And we have to figure out what we're doing with this guy's stuff before he wakes up and catches us. Jason started, as if he'd temporarily forgotten that we were in someone else's yard.
10: Yeah. Alright.
4: Cool. He started walking toward the little gate. Now that this latest crisis was passing behind us, I had an idea. Something to erase the last 20 minutes. Let's still do this house, though. Let's end on a good one, huh? Jason stopped. I don't know, man. He looked at the jack-o'-lantern again. Up close, this stuff looks super weird. Come on, don't puss out now. We did a dozen pumpkins, and we're just gonna leave the dumbest-looking one on the block alone? Last house. It wasn't a question. I nodded. Go get that pumpkin. I'm gonna see if gnomes can fly. Jason cocked an eyebrow. The cop? It'll take us two seconds. Ready? Go! Jason went. I took a deep breath. It felt, for the moment as if the natural order of things had been restored. Taking two quick steps, Jason mounted the steps. He paused, looking at the banister.
10: Even the lights are weird, man. They look like plants. There's leaves and shit all over them.
4: I didn't answer. I was already at the little Frankenstein gnome. Even though it was my idea to trash this house, I was starting to drag. 3 a.m. was just around the corner, and weekend or not, it had been a very long night. Bending down, I picked up one of the ceramic statues that had been draped with a tiny sheet. The statue was heavier than it seemed. I started to cock my arm back, aiming to clear the low hedge and shot put the little fucker out onto the sidewalk. I meant to do that, but Jason made a funny sound behind me, and I stopped and turned around. This
10: thing feels weird, man.
4: I wanted to yell at him to shut up, but that would have defeated the purpose. A moment later, though, the warning that was on my lips turned into a laugh. Jason was dancing around on the porch with the odd jack-o'-lantern. The weird purple stand seemed to be all of a piece with the pumpkin. Jay twirled his partner around twice, ripping down some of the thick clots of cobweb material in the process. Here we go! Jason held the pumpkin high over his head.
10: Watch... this.
4: In the next instant, everything changed. For a moment, I thought that there was some weird lighting effect on the porch that we had missed so far. It looked as if the purple pumpkin stand had come alive somehow. Jason's scream came floating across the yard, and I dropped the gnome as I bolted toward the porch. The tentacles convulsed and pulled the pumpkin down on top of Jason's head. The result was almost comical, in spite of his horrified shrieks. A light went on inside the house, and I skidded to a stop. For a brief moment, self-preservation warred with my duty to help my friend. I looked back over my shoulder toward the sidewalk. In the time I'd been faced away from it, the hedge had grown by at least two feet and the shrubs that separated Reynolds' lawn from the other two houses seemed to have gotten larger as well. The gate was just a brief glimpse of faded pickets through a deep cleft in the surging foliage. The mailbox was gone, absorbed by the hedge. I didn't remember having seen thorns on the bushes, at least not ones that large when we'd passed through earlier. Now, though, the trees seemed to have grown huge wooden needles. They looked sharp enough to skin someone alive. I turned back to the porch. Jay was flailing, beating the outside of the pumpkin with his fists, clawing at the mouth. I couldn't see any sign at all of Jay's head through the cutouts in the pumpkin. What the hell was it made of? I charged up the steps and seized hold of the jack-o'-lantern. It was repulsive to the touch, smooth and loose like the skin of a diseased frog. The thick, pulpy mouth began working up and down, catching my index finger between its strange orange lips. And I felt huge square teeth pressing back against me, threatening to crush my fingers into pulp. With an enormous lurch, I pulled my hand free and staggered back, That was the moment the rest of the decorations came to life. A full-sized skeleton that hung from the door began to dance. It clicked and clacked as its bony limbs clattered against the door, pushing itself free of the brass hook that had held it in place. Tumbling to the ground with a sound like dice in a cup, the skeleton began to clamber to its feet. I backed away, ...and felt resistance. Long gossamer strands of cobweb detached from the eaves... ...and stuck to my back, sides, and head. Where they touched me, they stuck and became stiff. Before I really knew what was happening, I couldn't move... ...and the skeleton was almost upright now. I clawed at the strands, but they had become as unyielding as bike cable. All was silent too silent. Jason. I looked over to where I'd left Jay, and he was standing totally rigid, like a mannequin. As I watched, the pumpkin on top of his shoulders tipped forward and began to suction walk its way down his body. Jay's head was gone. There was no blood at all. In the light from the living room window, I saw that a shiny, pink-white sheet of skin ran from shoulder to shoulder. A moment later, the body sank to its knees, then slammed forward onto the floor. More strands of web floated down to silence me, and I slapped my hands over my mouth, denying them entry. The slender cords attached to the back of my hands stinging with miserable fire. The skeleton had finally gained its legs and it took a step toward me, arms starting to raise in my direction. Suddenly, I noticed a new sound coming from the yard behind us. It sounded like rocks scraping on wood. I twisted around in time to see tiny hands reaching up over the banister. A pointed witch's hat preceded a maniacal chiseled stone face over the handrail. The fucking garden gnomes, all three of them, were coming to join the party. I didn't want to know what they were going to do. The front porch flooded with light as Mr. Reynolds opened the front door. He walked outside, taking little shuffling, hopping steps. He was an old guy, hunched over and shorter than Jason by a head. The man was wearing a Ronald Reagan mask. There was something funny about it, though. It didn't seem to end at his neckline. The little man tottered closer, looking me up and down. Mr. Reynolds smiled, or rather the rubber mask formed a grotesque approximation of a smile. I whimpered trying to blink away the salty tears streaming from his eyes. With a slow grinding sound that made my skin itch, the garden gnomes swiveled their stone heads to look at their master. Reynolds' eyes flashed with the same sick purple light I'd seen in the jack-o'-lantern, and the gnomes dropped back down over the railing. There were three muffled thuds as they hit the ground. Meanwhile, the skeleton's slow, deliberate journey had come to an end, and I thought he could feel a wave of malevolent joy as its bony fingers settled on my shoulders. Reynolds hop-walked forward and grasped the skeleton by the neck. With an effortless-looking flick of his arm, He tossed the pile of bones through the open door. Reynolds made a noise in his throat, like cicadas screaming. I struggled, still trying to pull free from the web scuff.
7: Oh, dear me.
4: His tone was a clicking mechanical sing-song.
7: Is it Halloween already? I thought it was tomorrow for some reason.
4: He patted at the rubber mask.
7: My disguise is not even ready yet.
4: Reynolds' gaze fell on Jason's lifeless, headless body.
7: My goodness, young fellow, it seems that my festive spirit has been a trifle aggressive.
4: Turning back to me, He continued.
7: All the same, I do wish I'd had one more night to prepare.
4: He reached down and stroked the pumpkin. The thing's eyes flashed purple again. The odd little gourds started purring. The sound made my guts lurch. With another grotesque rubber grin... Reynolds continued.
7: There's no accounting, I suppose, for the impetuousness of Yosh.
4: His tone and the way he spoke were so weird that it hurt my ears to listen. I thought back to how shitty I'd been to Jason when he suggested that we shouldn't come here. Jesus Christ, Jason... The man blinked behind his mask, and for a split second, I saw a scaly blue eyelid with a thin, opaque membrane that jittered across the surface.
7: Still, you boys will want your tricks and treats, I suppose. Don't go anywhere.
4: He went back into the house with his weird, shuffling, bobbing gait. I thrashed again against the webs that were holding me in place. Individual strands popped loose, taking bits out of my clothes and skin as they went. The pain from a dozen tiny new wounds was excruciating. I bit my lip to keep from yelling out, and willed Reynolds to take more time. With a final wrenching twist, I tore myself free and fell forward. My body hit the porch with a thud, leaving me winded and face to shiny stump with Jason's body. Bright light poured across us, and I winced.
7: Dear me, you're more precocious than I thought.
4: The old man was silhouetted in the doorway.
7: You have certainly earned your tricks and treats.
4: He shuffle-hopped closer and crouched down, proffering the cookie sheet that he'd brought out with him. This close, I could smell him. It was the dry, musky scent of the reptile house at the zoo. He placed
7: the pan on the ground. The young one where I come from love these. What are they?
4: I looked at the treats and scrambled to my knees so I could back away. The things on the cookie sheet looked like dark green caterpillars bee-striped with violent pink. Each had a single large eye on a stalk on the ends facing me. I tried to get to my feet, Reynolds' hand darted forward and caught my shoulders. The strength in his grip was like being trapped beneath a truck for as much give as I felt.
7: Stay. I insist. It is polite.
4: I tried to pull away again, and Reynolds forced me back onto my ass. The hairs on his neck were prickling. It only took another second before I realized what I'd seen. At the sound of my voice, all the tiny creatures' eyes had swayed on their stalks to look at me. They were listening to me.
7: These are excellent tricks and treats. The trick is to eat them. He
4: stroked the back of one of the caterpillars. It reared up off the pan at his touch, and I saw that its entire underside was covered in tiny, sharp teeth. He popped the one he'd been petting into his mouth.
7: Before... they eat... you...
4: The sound of the Reynolds thing chewing behind its mask was too much. I grabbed at the hand at my shoulder and dug in with my fingernails. The middle two fingers came away at my touch, ripping like tissue paper. Where they'd been, a ragged hole in the man's rubbery flesh revealed more lumpy blue scales and the start of a horny purple talon. I drew my legs up to my chest and rocked back. Something hard in my back pocket pressed into my ass. I kicked out hard with both feet and hit Reynolds squarely in the chest. Surprise was on my side, and I was free. I got to my feet and found that the cobweb tendrils were in motion again, blocking the stairs to the lawn. The jack-o'-lantern was patrolling the railing, and Reynolds was already recovering from the blow. My butt twitched where the something had pushed into me, the lighter. I jammed my hand into the pocket and came up with the purple disposable lighter. The wheel sparked once, twice, and then it was lit. I had no idea if any of this shit would even burn, but it was the only chance there was. I touched the tiny flame to the nearest cobweb, and the reaction was immediate. The entire mass went up in seconds, creating a flash of light and flame that was painful to look at. From behind me came an ear-splitting shriek of pain. Reynolds, it seemed, didn't like fire much either. I turned and saw the man-thing stagger back into the house, an arm thrown across its eyes. The flames reached the top of the cobweb stuff and started spreading to the porch. Suddenly, I felt a sharp pain in my foot. I looked down and saw one of the carnivorous candy worms attached to my boot. It couldn't get through the metal plate in the sole, but an inch of it was wrapped around against my instep, and I could feel its myriad teeth working against my skin. I kicked the side of the newel post, and the worm burst. (laughs) Its tiny eye popped free, and the crushed body landed amongst the rest of the treats, which made quick work of it. Reynolds was screaming now in its guttural alien language. The entire porch was in flames, and I had staggered down the steps to the lawn. The shape of the Reynolds thing moved back into the house. With a rending crack, the front beam of the porch fell down, spewing burning embers as it hit the ground. I dashed toward the gate. Before I got there, I could see one of the psychotic gnomes crawling toward me on its cement belly. I reared back and kicked the freakish little bastard with all my strength. Its head exploded on contact with the steel toed boot. Sending a small shower of plaster and paint flying across the lawn. The gnome stopped moving, and thick purple liquid began to pour from its ragged neck. Without looking back, I ran down the small path, and my way through the hedge that had somehow grown both higher and thicker since we'd arrived. Thorns caught at the holes in my shirt and tore them wider. I kept going finally reaching and jumping over the gate to the sidewalk, which had become embedded in the hedge. I felt my foot catch the top edge as I went over, and I hit the sidewalk. The world swam out of focus. Behind me, somewhere on the back lawn, I could still hear movement. A moment later, I heard the plink, plink, clink of tiny concrete feet along the pathway. I ran. Pain throbbed in a dozen places on my body. My shoulders still burned from the touch of the web's and Reynolds' pneumatic grip. My foot was killing me where that weird caterpillar thing had bitten through my foot. And on top of that, my skin felt hot and tight all over from being so near the fire. And now my knees and forehead were an agony of scraped and oozing flesh from my sidewalk dive. As I reached the end of the street, my boots weighing three pounds each at least, I started to slow up. As I did, my mind was already beginning to replay the horrors of the night. I shook my head as if the thoughts were a physical thing clinging to my scalp that I could shake out with enough effort. The movement made my growing headache worse. I didn't care. If I thought too long about what had happened, I would start screaming at the sky and never stop. So I moved and tried to think of nothing. 15 minutes later, I was at the door in the back of my house, the one that led downstairs to the basement and my bedroom. I was startled. I couldn't recall anything about the walk home. No matter. Just get inside and get to bed. If I'd been thinking clearly at all, I'd have called the cops or the fucking X-Files or something. But it had just been too much. I needed my bed. I fumbled my shaking hands into my pockets, meaning to get the keys, open this door, go downstairs and fall asleep. My hands came up empty. This final, small problem was one thing too many. I started to cry. My shoulders shook with huge, gasping sobs as I thought of Jason, of how close I'd come to joining him, and that something so awful could exist in plain sight of everything that was supposed to be normal. As I cried, I tried the doorknob again. Nothing. I shook the door. My parents, particularly Dad, would be pissed that I was out so late, but I didn't care. I was almost beyond thinking altogether. I rattled the door, screaming,
7: It's me! Let me in!
4: Over and over, an unknowable time later, the door swung open and my dad stood before me, his face a crazy mixture of sleepiness and rage. Get in the house. His tone was flat, inviting no response. "'I should have known it was you. Whenever
10: you and that jackass get together, it's trouble. I'm sick of it. Dad, say that. Go to your room, get some sleep. I'll deal with you in the morning.'
4: He turned and walked back towards my parents' room, the conversation over before I'd said anything. I wanted to scream after him. "'Jason's dead!' Jason's dead! Jason's dead! I'd stopped crying, but I couldn't stop shaking now. I couldn't think. I needed to sit down, lie down, sleep. I didn't sleep. I woke up to a text message on my phone, grounded until further notice, and no Wi-Fi. It made me laugh. I could give less than a half a shit about being grounded. The whole evening had spiraled so totally out of control, and I still wasn't sure what the hell I was going to do. I mean, Jason was dead. Dead. I should call the police. I needed to call the police. But then I'd have to admit what we'd done to all those houses. Sure, it was petty vandalism, but there'd been a lot of it. In the harsh pre-noon light of day, it was even hard to believe that anything had happened. Still, I'd burnt someone's house to the ground. That was going to be hard to ignore. I opened up the browser on my phone to check the news. I didn't have a ton of data on the cheap-ass plan my parents paid for, but it was enough. I was just about to hit the search button when a notification pinged through. New message from Screamin' JJ. I clicked on it. The message was brief. Crazy night, huh? Huge headache today. See you tonight. Got something awesome to show you." I felt like I was going to pass out. If Jason was alive and texting, had we taken drugs at one point? More importantly, if he was fine, why would I call the cops now? What would I tell them? My door banged open. I jumped.
10: Turn it off. You're grounded
4: dad. He didn't say anything else. Just waited until I did as I was told. He'd wait forever if I didn't. I thumbed the off switch.
10: Your mom and I are going out tonight. You're giving out candy.
4: My reply was out of my mouth before I even knew what I was going to say. Wait. You guys are leaving me alone? In the space of seconds... I had started sweating, and it was taking an effort to not shake like a leaf. It's a bunch of kids, Derek. As I looked back at my dad, I saw a mix of emotions at play on his face. There was the anger I expected, but also a lot more concern than I expected.
5: Are you feeling okay? What the hell did you idiots get up to last night?
4: I paused. Here was an inn. Here was the moment. Where to start? How much to tell? What could I even say about Jason now? Before I could answer, the mood had passed. Dad frowned. Never mind. You look fine, and
10: candy duty is the least you can expect after making your mom worry last night.
1: Grow up.
4: That night, there was rain, but it wasn't enough to deter the horde of candy-mad children from doing their thing. Mom and Dad were out at their party, leaving me to the constant ringing of the doorbell. I traipsed back and forth from the living room and a zombie movie rerun to the door, giving handfuls of junk to each little troll, transformer, and witch. It tapered off around 8.30, and after 9 o'clock came and went without a peep, I was ready to turn out the lights. As if my intentions had been broadcast to the universe, there was a knock on the door. Upon answering, I was greeted by a three-foot-tall gray alien staring up at me with big, black eyes.
11: Trick or treat!
4: I staggered back from the door, my mouth dropping open. The kid, after waiting about five seconds, reached into the candy bowl, and grabbed a handful of Twix bars. Thank you! He ran off into the night. My heart was pounding. I shut the door, went into the kitchen. Dad kept some scotch in the cabinet by the sink that should take the edge off, I hoped. The doorbell rang. I opened the door. The pumpkin that sat atop Jason's shoulders spoke, in Jason's voice. Good evening, Derek. There was a burst of warmth as hot piss ran down my leg. I opened my mouth, but nothing came out.
10: Tonight is and
4: is it not? The cadences were Reynolds. You can't be here. You're... Dead.
10: Yes and no. That was most... impolite of you.
4: The pulpy face of the pumpkin broadened into a sagging, rotten smile. I started to cry again. Old me, the me from before last night, would be calling me a fucking baby by now. Why are you doing this to me?
1: You know our secrets.
4: As he spoke, the flannel shirt that Jason had been wearing last night rippled and bulged in various places. There was no telling what was going on under there. Please, please, just let me go. No one will believe me anyway. Just, just
1: go away!
4: The Jason thing
10: smiled. Please, that is not what you must say.
7: What, what is it? What do I need to say? Tell me, I'll say it, I'll do it!
4: The pumpkin grin spread wider. Jason began to unbutton his shirt. The scaly chest beneath was coated with hundreds of the carnivorous worms. I started screaming then, and didn't stop. I didn't have a thought left in my head. All I had left in the world was my voice and my scream. It was so loud, so consistent that I barely heard the Jason thing's final words.
10: Trick or treat.
1: have ended are you feeling all right we did our best to give you a fright you may feel safe in the bright sunlight but soon once again you'll be sleepless tonight the no sleep podcast is presented by creative reason media the musical score was composed by brandon boone our production team is phil Mykolski jeff clement and jesse cornett our creative content manager is olivia white our editor-in-chief is jessica mcavoy please visit Nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show on behalf of everyone at the no sleep podcast we thank you for being sleepless tonight and for being a supportive season pass member This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.